From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The future of technology has long fascinated storytellers, from books like Brave New World to many depictions in film. She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot one? Well, you seem like a person, but you're just a voice in a computer. I can understand how the limited perspective of an unartificial mind would perceive it that way. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Technology is not quite where Blade Runner, her, and 2001 A Space Odyssey might have imagined. But much of our lives today is informed by artificial intelligence, or the less scary term, intelligent algorithms. From Google searches to assessing mortgage rates, getting a job, or how much we pay for health insurance. While AI helps systems operate quickly, it is not perfect. Like humans, these technologies are only as good as the information they get. Dr. Ayanna Howard is chair of the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech. She's here in the studio to talk about how technology often reflects our own biases. Ayanna, welcome. Thank you. This is exciting. Well, thank you for being here. It is exciting. I mean, this is something that we've seen so much in movies, how robots are depicted making decisions based on fact. You know, it comes across as very logical and based on data. Is it the same in real life? No, it's not. Um, because the fact is, fact, uh, is these algorithms are learning from us and we're not perfect. That's that's an understatement. So this concept then that technology may not be as fair and unaffected as we imagine. This is known as algorithmic bias. And bias among humans, a real learned thing, connected often to emotion. How does technology become biased? So so the thing is, is that um, the algorithms themselves aren't, you know, they don't have emotions. But when we decide to use them for certain applications, how do we train them? How do we give them the expert knowledge that they need? Um, and so they are learning from our data. And our data is based on our emotions. Like we make decisions sometimes if we haven't had our cup of coffee, it might be different than if we are, you know, up late at night and tired. And so that's the data that's feeding into the algorithms. And so... We sometimes get that bias that we ourselves have. Well, let's get to some examples. There have been studies through the years of identical resumes with more American-sounding names like Kevin or Heather or uh, also Jamila or Lakeisha, you know, that kind of thing, something African-American. And we should mention this has been done in France and the U.K. as well, so it's not just African-American. What is the difference between when a machine sorts through resumes and gives preference to the more American-sounding name and and when a human does it? so the problem is, is that um, these – so I want to figure out who is the best job candidate. And so what I will do is I will take the resumes and I'll take away the names, right? So I'm thinking, oh, I'm giving my AI algorithm a pure unbiased resume. But the fact is, is that there's things that are correlated between names and activities, as an example, if I am more likely uh, a woman, I might have Society of Women Engineers on my resume, even though my name may be gone. Right. Um, and so the algorithms are using the data because maybe there were more men that were hired than women. And so who are the best employees? It's the ones who end up being guys. And, and the, the ones who have experience often. Correct. 
So these systems often determine recommendations or results based on the data available or how data was sorted or prioritized. Healthcare is another big data-driven industry. So how do we see algorithmic bias happening in medicine? Yeah, so uh, healthcare is the one that scares me a lot because that can impact um, our outcomes and our lives. Um, so as an example, in heart attacks recently it's been um, known that women exhibit the symptoms of heart attacks slightly different. Hmm. So, so you remember when you saw those movies and you see these guys clutching their chest, yes. right? You're like, oh my gosh, heart attack. Um, so they've shown that women don't have those same kind of things. It's a different type of feeling. It's not this clutching, oh, intense pain. And so imagine that you're training an algorithm that says, okay, these are the symptoms. You know, let them, what are the symptoms? And you go, oh, clutching the pain. They're like, oh, heart attack. The woman comes in, it's like, well, I have this pain, but it's kind of mere, it's in my stomach, it's in my back. They're like, oh, well, you're not a high priority because it's probably just indigestion. So the connection is that, uh, let me make sure I got this right. So because there are fewer data sets of how women show or manifest a heart attack, they're much more less likely to be treated correctly. Correct. And then the AI algorithm is learning those characteristics. So but can you make the argument? It's all there in the data. You know, this is how women do it. Um, so it is in the data. But the fact is, is that there has to be a human that gives the output, right? And so the human will say, okay, this is a heart attack and this is not, right? And that's the problem. Okay, I think I'm following all this. Now, historically, there have been a number of technological advancements that do have bias built in, you know, simply because of their creators. That's what I'm hearing from you. Film photography is one interesting example that used white skin to calibrate the colors in prints. So does the creator, the one who determines what is important or what the calibration is, continue to play a role in these systems that may operate with bias now that we're living in this digital realm? Uh, yes. In fact, there has been, uh, a, unfortunately, um, there has been tweets and blog posts about things like passport systems, which mm -hmm. are now using facial recognition technology, right. where um, individuals who are of an Asian descent, it isn't able to image them right because it has to see that you, you know, your face is centered and your eyes are open and, you know, you can't be smiling, right? And so there have been records of uh, folks with who have of Asian descent that is not able to recognize. But now facial recognition technology, not, not just passports, but we're looking at that in, you know, airport screening and that kind of thing, even on our phones. So if that technology is making bad assumptions, is it then propagating biased assumptions? I mean, is it replicating it and, and, and making it even greater in it our is. culture? It is. And I will give a hypothetical example, although it's not too hypothetical. Uh, so there is actually a startup company that's looking at um, putting facial recognition on uh, police body cams. Um, and so think about this, right? Um, you're in a scenario, you stop an individual, you're already in a high stress situation, right? And uh, you are very cautious and you kind of, you're rationalizing, but there's emotions involved. And now your body cam recognizes the individual and matches it incorrectly because it's overtrained on, say, uh, an age 18-year-old um, African-American male. Mm -hmm. And the AI system says, High warning, high warning. Mm -hmm. You're in emotion. You're like, oh, my gosh, the AI system has told me this is danger. You have just skyrocketed the emotion and any little thing. Oh, they're, they're going for something, right? And they're just going for their license. This is a problem. 
So I'm speaking with Dr. Ayana Howard. She's chair of the School for Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech. And we're talking about how various forms of bias are often built into technology used every day. And as we're hearing, how it can really affect outcomes. All right. So with medical or policing situations, these are critical systems. Many times doctors and police need to make split-second decisions, right? So what are some of the other challenges or concerns if these potentially unreliable systems are being deployed and that people are relying on them? Um, So if you think about what affects all of us, uh, one is um, education. So when we apply to colleges or med schools or even if we're trying to apply to the hot kindergarten program in Say Atlanta. Um, It's becoming more apparent that AI is being used to make these decisions. Um, And so this can impact your quality of life later on, which is a problem, I would say, in that regard. But do you think that, you know, compared to human biases or human opinions, if something comes out in a data set, are we more likely to believe it than not? We are. Um, so research, including my own, has shown that when a uh, algorithm, an AI system says something, people are more inclined to believe it, even if they aren't quite sure. Like if a person says something uh, and we don't believe them, we'll, we'll go over like, oh, let's Google it or something. When an AI system says something, we are more inclined to be like, well, it must know something I don't know. Uh-huh. So with technologies advancing so quickly, government, legal codes, and companies, which tend to operate more slowly, may have a hard time catching up with that kind of thing. So where are we in terms of regulation addressing algorithmic bias and even recognizing it? Um, So, of course, law always uh, falls behind technology. Um, And so we are seeing that there's uh, some states are doing things like banning facial recognition. So this happened in San Francisco area where anything related to, say, policing is not allowed to use facial recognition Mm -hmm. algorithms. Uh, And then we have um, the U.S. federal government just released a AI principles, uh, in fact, earlier uh, this month, which is not rules, not regulations, but when you're designing AI, what are those things that you should be thinking about? Uh, one of the principles is trustworthy AI. Um, so at the federal level, we haven't quite got to strict regulations, but at some of the state levels we have, at some point we're going to converge. So what are you and your academic colleagues who are looking at AI and how these biases can be carried forth? What do you recommend in terms of regulation, more or less? Yeah, so as an academic, we are actually worried about regulations. Um, and it's only because... Right, it might be sti- have a stifling effect. It will have a stifling, because uh, typically regulations are not designed by programmers and scientists, right? And so understanding the technology is not part of these regulations. Uh, the other problem is, is that um, if we think about competition, other countries are not necessarily putting in regulations, mm. which basically then puts us at a very negative disadvantage and could actually impact our own freedoms, right? Like all of these agents outside are attacking us and we're like, yeah, we have nothing to mm. help us. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do worry about regulations. And so as academics and developers of this technology, a number of us are actively trying to think of ways and working with ethicists and social scientists of how do we mitigate the, the bias because they are still better than people. 
Right. So we've heard, you know, major consequences as we have you've been talking about, as well as minor ones, like the fact that maybe your your child or your twin could unlock your phone with facial recognition. So how about the average person? What can we do to help combat algorithmic bias? Um, so there's actually two things. One is um, just like with anything, write your, your person, your, your legal person, your representative and say, hey, I like AI. Please say I like AI. <laughs> but, you know, we need to put in more funding for mitigating, not just developing. Um, and so, as like with anything, when you have, hear enough of a voice, you start thinking about both the positives and the negative. The other thing is, is that some of us are, we tend to overtrust these systems. Uh-huh. Um, when you have your search engine, how many times do you go to the second page? Like, never. Right. Right? Like, okay, why don't you just say, you know what, today I'm going to always go to the second page and get out of my own comfort zone. Any ideas of how AI could be used to actually reduce discrimination or human bias? Yeah, so one of the nice things about um, these systems is that they can go through an immense amount of data and could look at the disparate outcomes, like the differences in outcomes. So they can fix themselves, but we as developers, as companies, have to allow the systems as part of that, which adds in some time, right? You can't just release a software. It's like, no, we now need to take two months to do bias checking and bias testing, not just trying to figure out if we're at, we can release it and make money. So you're an accomplished woman in technology. You were named among the 23 most powerful women engineers in the world by Business Insider. So what difference does diversity behind the developments, those who are designing the systems in technology, make? Um, It's really important, and mainly because if we don't have diversity and diversity of thought, diversity easily is associated with gender and ethnicity and socioeconomics. That means you have groupthink, and you're never going to realize certain things, right? If you don't have a woman on the team, you're not going to think about things like um, it might be hard to get into a certain autonomous vehicle with a dress. Like, you wouldn't think about that because you may not wear a dress, right? And so even these little things make a difference on your team. What do you use for a search engine? I'm curious. Um, I actually go between Bing and Google just because of the principle. All right. Dr. Ayanna Howard, Chair of the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Now we're going to leave you with a 2016 song written by artificial intelligence, created by researchers at Sony and human Benoit Carré, brought to life. Coming up, the story behind Muhammad Ali's return to boxing and the role Atlanta played. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. By 1970, Muhammad Ali's boxing career was on the skids. Convicted for draft evasion, Ali lost his license to fight in all 50 states and became a polarizing figure across the country. Well, that was before a couple of key players managed to jump through a legal loophole and stage a comeback fight in Atlanta. The twists and turns behind Ali's returns to the ring are the focus of the movie Ali's Comeback, the untold story, which screens this Friday at the Atlanta History Center. But beforehand, I am joined by the film's director, Art Jones. Art, thanks so much for being here. You're more than welcome. Good morning. Also with us, Yaya McLean, producer for the film. Hello, Yaya. Hey, how's it going? Just fine. And what a movie. It's been nearly 50 years since this comeback to boxing. How did you guys find out about this story? When Ali died in 2016, I was here in the city of Atlanta. I'm originally from Harlem, New York, but I was here in the city of Atlanta, and I just froze once I heard the news that he had finally passed, and I 
coincidentally, that weekend, I began my subscription to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and initially they had one article about him. The following day, there were two. On Sunday, there was an entire section in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution dedicated to Ali's relationship to the city of Atlanta. Mm. And with that, I had this epiphany. I was, though I was a young kid at the time, I remember people being overjoyed and elated about the idea that he was going to reemerge from the shadows of the boxing world after three long years of being exiled. And no one stopped long enough to ask, how is that possible? Hmm. More importantly, who made that possible? And that started an itch that I couldn't scratch. And I called members of, of my team together the next, uh, the next couple of days, and I said, there's a number of films that have already been done about Muhammad Ali, but, and so I don't want to reinvent the wheel. So we spent the week researching other films that are out there about Ali, and we came back and we recognized that even in the more popular films about Ali's uh, history, there is almost no mention of how he came back into the ring in 1970. Well, you certainly found a load of people to talk about this. There are a lot of people in the film, including Robert Castle. Yes. He's an Emory alum. He's an attorney and a sports promoter. He told you about trying to get the boxing commissioners in several states to allow Ali to fight again. What happened? Well, let me just back up a little bit, because Robert Castle, yes, he is a Emory uh, alumni. He graduated from the law school, but... Uh, before he graduated, he met a lady here in Atlanta. Well, who that's what happened. Hard, right? And they married. They moved back to Brooklyn, New York. He's now working on Park Avenue in New York City when he meets the great Bob Aaron, the great boxing promoter, Bob, Bob Aaron. Bob Aaron talks him into getting into the promotion business. He's like 29, 30 years old at the time and very green to the whole boxing world. But he gets Ali's contract. Interestingly enough, he gets his contract after he's been stripped of his title, after he's been convicted of draft evasion. He's had, um, uh, he ha he's had his passport taken. He's got a $10,000 fine. He's looking at five years imprisonment. And now this young kid, Robert Castle, has got the monumental task of trying to get Ali back into the ring. And that's, so Robert Castle, after his moment of frustration... Uh, after four times trying to get him into the ring and all of them fell apart, calls his father-in-law, Harry Pett, in Atlanta and asks him, what does he know or who does he know that could tell him something about the laws in the state of Georgia governing boxing? Harry Pett says, I don't know anybody. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I might have a contact through this black senator who I'm acquaintances with named Leroy Johnson. Let me give him a call and see what he knows. He calls Leroy Johnson. Leroy Johnson, who, had, who, by the way, was not a real boxing enthusiast, but he had a tremendous amount of respect for Ali. Yeah, Ali. Mm -hmm. And so because of that respect, he says, I'll look it up and see what the laws are. Within 24 hours, he calls him back and boldly proclaims, I can get out of the license. All right. So this is sets things sort of spinning in this film. But I just want to back up for a second and talk about why Ali was blocked from fighting in so many states. It was the FBI that was was coming back at the at the boxing promotions and commissioners and saying, you cannot do this. Ali, the most successful boxer in the world, he refuses to fight in the Vietnam War. Here he is from the film speaking about why he didn't want to fight. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or uh, some darker people or uh, some poor hungry people in the mud for big powerful America and shoot them for what? They never called me 
They never lynch me. They didn't put no dogs on me. They didn't rob me of my nationality, rape and kill my mother and father. Well, I'm going to shoot them for what? How can I go shoot them? Them little poor little black people, little babies and children, women. How can I shoot them poor people? I'm just take me to jail. This is a pretty big affront to the government of the United States from an African-American man. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what Muhammad Ali did is... I don't know, a hundred times more than what Jack Johnson did. I mean, Jack, Jack Johnson, Johnson, the boxer from the earlier part of the 20th century. Right. And he stood for what he believed in. And he did a lot of crazy things, but Jack Johnson kind of stood for his own, whatever he believed in as well. And Muhammad Ali took that to a whole nother level. What allowed Ali to do that is because unlike Jack Johnson at the turn of the 20th century, Ali had ABC, NBC, and CBS. Yeah, and, right. and, and, you know, okay, so we're telling the story of this film, but to see it, to see, you know, his bravado outside of the ring, and, and especially beautifully to see him in the ring, the, the grace and the power and the force. So I just want to encourage people to make sure and see it. But the story itself is absolutely fascinating. Thank you. And Art, as you were just telling us about, that Ali couldn't get this license to fight, Robert Castle makes a phone call and comes back. And his, his father-in-law, Harry Pat, says, oh, maybe I can help you out. Mm-hmm. He gets in touch with somebody called Leroy Johnson, a Georgia state senator. Tell us about this. Man. Leroy Johnson was the first African-American senator in the state of Georgia in 92 years, or should that be since Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And Leroy Johnson had looked up the state law or the statute in the state of Georgia with regard to boxing. And what allowed him to come back and speak so boldly uh, to Robert Castle is because in 1970, there was nothing existed. (laughs) No boxing commission. There was nothing. There's no statue. Nothing existed on the books in the state of Georgia governing boxing. Well, it wasn't really a big sports state at that time. No, it wasn't. We're talking about Muhammad Ali's storied return to the boxing ring with Art Jones and Yaya McLean, director and one of the producers of the film Ali's Comeback, The Untold Story. It's screening at the Atlanta History Center this Friday at 7. So Ali's promoters had tried to get him a license to fight in dozens of cities with no success. Now it looks like Atlanta might be the perfect place because there is no state boxing commission. At this time, is 1970, he was a controversial African-American athlete. And this is just a couple years after the signing of the Civil Rights Act. So give us a sense of what was at stake in Atlanta at the time. Well, I think in Atlanta, first off, it, in many ways uh, for African-Americans was uh, KKK headquarters or, okay, or, 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 or KKK Central. There was the uh, White Citizens Council as well as the KKK who pretty much dominated a lot of what went on in the city of Atlanta, even though many of those who, uh, who initiated the civil rights movement, they were part of that. Atlanta was still politically moved and economically controlled by a very white supremacist group. And so the idea that Ali would even go back into the ring in this city was not on anybody's mind. No one in their wildest imaginations would have thought that Ali was going to go back into the ring in the city of Atlanta in 1970. No. 
But he did, thanks in large part to the state senator, Leroy Johnson, and his persistence in talking to city and state officials to get approval to stage the fight in Atlanta. And this included Lester Maddox, the avowed segregationist governor of Georgia. We're going to get to that in a minute. But first, how did Johnson even get to talk to Maddox about this? Uh, first, he had to get the approval of Mayor Sam Marcel. Uh-huh, Sam Marcel. And, and, and just to give some perspective to that, Mayor Sam Marcel was the first Jewish mayor in the city of Atlanta. So had every Jewish person in the city of Atlanta voted for Sam Marcel, he still could not have become mayor. It was people such as Jesse Hill and Leroy Johnson who ushered in the black vote to help Sam Marcel become mayor. So when Leroy Johnson had gone to Sam Marcel and humbly asked for him to uh, consent to allowing Ali to uh, to come back into the ring in the city of Atlanta, it was cashing a chit, so to speak. Because I'm coming to you because I made you being here mm-hmm. possible. Okay, so Sam Marcel gives his tacit approval to allow Ali to fight in the city, but he but he then warns him that if you you, you may want to talk to the governor uh, because it would be appropriate to do so. Mm. And that's what leads him to go to then-Governor Lester Maddox. Well, we should also mention that he also says, as long as you make a $50,000 contribution yeah, to my yeah. prevent- drug prevention program. <laughs> 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 okay, so this brings us back to Lester Maddox. Leroy yes. Johnson gets an appointment with Lester, Governor Lester Maddox, walks in there, and, and what happens? Well, initially, and, and, and this is kind of serendipitous, a week before he met with Lester Maddox, Lester Maddox's own son had been sentenced by a judge for his illegal and criminal activity in stealing hubcaps off of cars. Mm-hmm. And the sentencing judge at Lester Maddox's son's uh, um, a court case says, young man, <clears throat> everyone deserves a second chance. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to allow you an opportunity to redeem yourself and provide community service as opposed to giving you jail time. Leroy Johnson is now face-to-face a week later with Lester Maddox, and he looks at Lester Maddox and very somberly says, Governor, everyone deserves a second chance. (laughs) (laughs) And I want you to help me to help our league to go back into the ring. Uh, what a great politician using every tool in the oh, belt. Oh, he was a very astute politician, mm-hmm. extremely astute politician. And initially, Lester Maddox said, and it was in the, uh, it was then called the Journal Constitution. It wasn't the, I think it was the, the, it was Atlanta, the Atlanta Journal. One was the morning paper, one was the afternoon okay, paper. Atlanta but, Journal and the Atlanta Constitution. Okay, and it probably came out in the Atlanta Constitution that evening saying, on with the fight. Right. Initially, Lester Maddox supported the idea of having the fight in the city of Atlanta. It was considered this. Ali brought media wherever he went, even though he was out of the ring for three years. He still brought the media wherever he went. Atlanta had no sports, anything going on. They had no claim to fame for anything going on in the sports world. So I'm sure Lester Maddox is kind of thinking, oh, this kid comes to Atlanta. 
he's going to bring the media with him. And, and, and surely he did. And, all, and if he's bringing the media, that's going to bring more people to Atlanta. That's going to help generate more revenue. All the hotels are going to get filled up. All the restaurants are going to get business. And we're going to make a lot of money over the course of the, uh, the weekend leading up to the fight. So he was looking at it from a, from, from a business standpoint and embraced the idea initially. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's, the, there's the clunk. Okay, initially. I, within 24 hours, two interesting things happened. One at the home of Leroy Johnson, where he and his lovely wife, Cleopatra, were lying in bed when, uh, let's say, their bedroom window got air-conditioned and <laughs> by, by, by buckshot. And the next day, he meets with, with Governor Maddox, and Governor Maddox has said, under no circumstances will I leave fight in the state of Georgia. Some things have happened that he made it impossible. Total 180 he'd done. He'd totally changed his, his mind. And so at that time, Leroy thought, well, if the governor speaks against us, we're not going to have an opportunity to have the fight. But he talked to the previous governor, our Governor Sanders, who said, let me do a little research myself. And he calls Leroy Johnson up later that day and says, read the journal Constitution tomorrow. I think you'll be pleased. And he just hung up the phone. And the next morning, he read in, uh, in the paper where, in the state of Georgia, governors uh, have right to govern statewide events. But when it comes to the various municipalities, the decision as to what goes on in the municipalities is the exclusive domain of whoever runs that municipality, such as the mayor. And that is how we get to Ali's first exhibition match in the city of Atlanta. We have to take a short break, but before we go, let's just talk about Ali and what he was doing at the time. You spoke with his then-wife, Khalila Ali, who picked up the phone when that first call came in that Ali could get a license to fight in Atlanta. Here she is describing his reaction to the news. He jumped and screamed and hollered right there in the kitchen. And uh, he was so excited and he... Got in his car, was running down the street and telling everybody at the barbershop and everything. It was just, it was one of them moments. It was a really nice moment. And I just sat there and watched him just go crazy. <laughs> Khalila Ali had such a fervent belief that the world could not do without Muhammad Ali that she made sure that he got up every morning and ran, put on those combat boots and ran five miles. She was the spiritual force behind Muhammad Ali to keep him uh, agile and to keep him fit because when she got off that phone call, it w and between that time Ali n learned that he was going back in the ring and the time he went into the ring was six short weeks. Mm. Ali had been out of the ring for three and a half years yeah. and he had a six-week notice to go back into the ring and, the, and the, the reason that he was able to prevail against Jerry Quarry, who was not a lightweight, is Khalil Ali. Mm. Well, one thing about being a champion and Muhammad Ali is the greatest champion of all time. One thing is that you have to have a certain arrogance about yourself. And when you have that certain arrogance about yourself, you're going to do what no one else is doing. I don't know if you know, but I was married to Layla Ali, Muhammad Ali's daughter. I did not know that. And I'm a former two-time world champion. Well, you look like a guy who could knock someone out. Not anymore. <laughs> not, not anymore. I don't want no trouble. <laughs> I don't want no trouble. But Muhammad Ali is a gentle giant, a loving, humble guy. And I've seen Muhammad Ali cry from, from happiness. I mean, I've been a Muhammad Ali fan my whole life. 
And I started boxing because I was a skinny guy with long hair, and they used to call me Joanna <laughs> because my name used to be Johnny, so they used to call me Joanna. And I would beat him up. But I would see Muhammad Ali and patting his afro and talking about how good he looked, and I'd be like, man, that's me. I, that's what I do. I pat my afro and talk about how good I look. I'm going to be a boxer. And that's how I started boxing, copying off of Muhammad Ali. My guests are Yaya McLean and Art Jones, one of the producers and the director of the film Ali's Comeback. We're going to continue our conversation about Muhammad Ali's return to the boxing ring in Atlanta just after the break. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott. We're jumping back into our conversation about Muhammad Ali's return to professional boxing in 1970. This is in the years after Ali was convicted of draft evasion. His promoters, they struggled to schedule a match between Ali and Joe Frazier, the heavyweight champion at the time. Now, that'll change when Georgia State Senator Leroy Johnson managed to convince some key officials and to exploit a legal loophole in the state of Georgia's boxing laws to obtain that coveted contract for a boxing match between Ali and Frazier. This is a story told in the film Ali's Comeback, and my guests are director Art Jones and producer Yaya McLean. The film will be showing at the Atlanta History Center on Friday. So Leroy Johnson finally paves the way to get a contract and needs to make a fight happen between Ali and Frazier. Uh, Joe Frazier at the time managed by Yank Durham. Art, how does he make this happen? In, just to give perspective, understand, Leroy Johnson is a state senator. He is not a, a particular sports enthusiast, and least of all, a boxing enthusiast. He's able to finally get a license for Ali to go back into the ring, and his next move is to fly up to Philadelphia to have a face-to-face with Yank Durham, and he's bringing the contract in, uh, in hand, saying, uh, I got a contract here to have Ali fight your boy, Joe Frazier, in Atlanta, Georgia. And... If you remember the story about the shepherd boy who uh, who kept calling Wolf, yeah. uh, understand that in three and a half years and 62 attempts to get Ali back into the ring, more than half of those matches were against Joe Frazier. And because all of them, uh, all the others had imploded, Yang Durham is looking at this, this, this frail black senator from Georgia who's waving a contract saying, I can get Ali back in the ring. And he's like, yeah, 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 sure, right. Okay. <laughs> he's, he's not particularly impressed. Okay. And, and, and so he says, to prove it to you, I'm going to go back to Atlanta. I'm going to set up an exhibition about, and I will prove to you that Ali can, in fact, fight. This is what brings us to this exhibition match at Morehouse. Yes. And by the way, it's an interesting story of why they chose Morehouse in particular for this match. Why did they choose to do it at Morehouse? Leroy Johnson thought that there were a number of places in and around the city where they could have actually had the exhibition bout, but given the tension that was going on around the anticipation of the fight, he wanted to make sure that he had greater control over that environment. And so he wanted, to, he was thinking where would be an, a, a more uh, secure location, a place where even if white people came, they would behave themselves because they would be the minority there and they'd be out of their element. And that's why he thought Morehouse College would be a really good place because it is a very safe, very secure environment for the African-American communities, and it would eliminate any kind of uncomfortable or unnecessary mishaps happening that would disrupt that exhibition bout. 
So that exhibition match, which is kind of a dry run, is scheduled at Morehouse College that fall. Frazier's management, however, still doesn't want to participate or doesn't believe it's going to happen. And Ali instead faces off with three different contenders. How'd that go? He has three rounds with three different contenders. He easily defeats all three. And so he turns back to Yang Du and says, See, I got him. I, I got Ali back in the ring. He can legitimately fight. And Yang Du is like, Yeah. Okay. Wolf. Yes. That's exactly <laughs> what he's thinking. He says, We're out. We're not going. He says, I'm not going to bring my boy back to, uh, to our, our down to Atlanta under the auspices that he's going to be able to fight again, only to wait till the 11th hour, and something will come up, as, as it's had many times before, to make the fight a non-starter. So, no, you guys just go ahead, and if you get him another, if you find another contender, fine. So, at this time, Robert Castle and Leroy Johnson uh, is kind of crestfallen, because they're like, whoa, uh... After three and a half years, we finally got Ali a legitimate license, but the license reads Ali, or actually Cassius Clay, a.k.a. Muhammad Ali, against Joe Frazier, and Joe Frazier's manager will not let him go into the ring. But they then come up with this idea of Ali fighting a great white hope, which is an old trick that's been used in boxing before, pitting a successful African-American male boxer against a white one. Well, first, let's just hear a little bit from the film Ali's Comeback. This is Robert Castle talking about the idea of pitching Ali against Jerry Quarry. The next best thing we could do was to get uh, a great white hope. If there's anything the public wanted to see was a white guy beat the hell out of Ali. So this gives us a sense of, like, the racial dynamics, all of the dynamics that are going on here behind the scenes. And Jerry Quarry is a little hesitant at first. Yes. But you see, in this particular case, Jerry Quarry had, his father had a tremendous amount of influence on him. Right. And Jerry did call, call his father after Ali personally called him to invite him to take on the match. And his father was against it. His father said, no, under no circumstances will you take... Why? Because he was considered a draft dodger, because he was a black man, because he was Ali? I think his father felt his career was still on the rise, and his father wanted to protect his career. He knew that Ali was controversial. He just, for whatever reason, he just didn't think it would be prudent to have his son going in the ring against someone who was so polarizing in 1970. Mm -hmm. That was... I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming that was more his father's thinking than anything else. And the only reason that Jerry Quarry himself personally was thinking not to do it is because he just did not feel comfortable going into, into the ring, win, lose, or draw, to fight his idol. He idolized Ali. It was his wife, Kathleen Quarry, who overheard uh, the conversation between him and Ali. She didn't know who was on the phone. But when it was revealed that it was Ali, she got excited. And and she went to know, what did he want? And he said, well, he, he wants me to fight. And, and so she's still excited, thinking, okay, so. And he says, no, nah, I don't think I'm going to do it. And she launches into conveying to him, if this is the man who you have such reverence for, who you honor and you have such respect for, who is your idol, how could you not? allow him an opportunity to earn a living again. And it was with that speech that she made that made Jerry Quarry then pick up the phone to call Ali back and say, okay, I'll fight you. Well, 
Another great moment from the film, Ali's Comeback. Art Jones is with us. He is the director of the film. Also with us, Yaya McLean, who is a producer on the film. And also, as we are learning, a, a boxer himself and related closely to the Ali family. Well, okay, so... Lester Maddox gets a lot more than he bargained for. He thought that the hotels would be filled up and the restaurants would be filled up, and that's true. But who came into town may not have been his choice. Uh, There are a number of people in the film uh, that talk about the American, African-American celebrity class pulling in with their limousines and, you know, (laughs) full-length furs. People are saying, like, I've never seen a full-length fur in my life. Dripping with jewels look absolutely fabulous. It is a glamorous event, but not really typically what African-American communities in the South looked like at the time. What, what impression did that make on Atlanta? I think it had a phenomenal impression on the city of Atlanta. I, I think black Atlantans were very proud to see so many notable celebrities come into town. I mean, you had Bill Cosby, you had Sidney Poitier, you had uh, Curtis Mayfield, uh, Diana Ross was here, Barbara Streisand was here, you had um, the Four Tops, The Temptation, and, and everybody who was a who's who from the music industry at that time that was big, as well as those who were from television and from the large screen. Even Diane Carroll, the late Diane Carroll now, was, was here for that fight. So you had really three specific contingencies within the African-American community that were in attendance. You had the civil rights, uh, uh, well, the celebrities that I just referenced, and you had that crowd, but you also had the civil rights crowd. So you had Ambassador uh, Andrew Young, uh, Coretta Scott King, as, as well as then Deputy Mayor uh, Maynard Jackson, and a whole slew of those who were from the civil rights and the political contingency. The third contingency, which no one likes to really talk about much, but was a very powerful presence, Every big-time hustler in the country from Chicago, from New Orleans, from New York, from, uh, f- from, uh, from L.A., from San Francisco, from Miami, descended on Atlanta and their luxury cars. So I think for a lot of white Atlanta, they were just kind of blown away to see this kind of opulence, this kind of richness, this kind of finance come into the city in the hands of African Americans. Mm. Well, let's hear just a clip about that from the film. It was like Christmas in October. You know, with the fur coats and the matching fur hats and and then the, the, the dripping jewelry. And you see how Atlanta is today. Like Tank Davis just fought last week at the State Farm Arena. All the celebrities were there, all the rappers, the actors. Everyone was dripping in jewelry. I mean, Atlanta is the mecca of everything just about now. And it really is. Do you think it, it's safe to say that it kind of established itself in some ways at that time? I think that it, it definitely establishes itself as a, a spot to go to. Mm-hmm. Some people who we interview actually, st- uh, who were here, they envision it as a coronation for Ali. There was just so much hype around his returning to the ring after being in exile for three long years. They came to pay homage to the greatest athlete of the 20th century yep. in 1970. Well, all right, so I'm not, this is all a matter of public record, so I'm not giving anything away here, but Ali won the fight in three rounds. They actually called the fight. But it is so <laughs> worth it, again, to see that, that, that the, his, him in the ring. This fight is absolutely spellbinding, and you have all these people talking, you know, Andrew Young's getting splattered with blood at the, at the, at the side of the ring. It's, it's unbelievable. 
so this, this, you know, everybody was watching this fight. It was an incredible event, you know, both on the ground here in Atlanta and otherwise. And I will leave it to viewers to hear about the after party because that is just an epic, epic story that we won't get into now. But so after that, the floodgates open. I mean, this was a fight to open up the floodgates to Ali's career, where most people today, a lot of people who are, I would say are under 50, realized that the Ali that they know, that they respect, that they admire, his career was relaunched through this event that took place on. October 26th of 1970. Well, so, so all the other boxing commissions just, you know, said, okay, enough. It's, we're past that now. I think they, they recognized uh, the kind of revenue that the, Ali The bought. success, exactly. The success from that fight. And they was like, okay, well, I got a license there. We might as well get some of that money, too. Mm-hmm. And that led Muhammad Ali to who we all know him today to be the greatest of all time. But what, what really did happen to his career after that? You saw it really grow and expand and in in ways which set precedent for other uh, areas of sport in that before 1970, almost no baseball, football, basketball player got paid enough money to even live throughout the off-season. Most people worked at other jobs. Even some of the top baseball players worked at other jobs. Ali was the very first to get a purse for over a million dollars. And he broke a ceiling that led to what's happened in sports in other arenas, such as baseball, basketball, and football. Worldwide. Where where, where you began to see players on, on teams be offered contracts in the millions of dollars. Before 1970, before Muhammad Ali, that did not happen. You got paid couple of thousand dollars and you went to work in the local hardware store during the off season until until spring training again but the idea that multi-million dollar purses or or, or contracts would would be offered to any sportsman not before Muhammad Ali he was the very first Muhammad Ali was so powerful that he he reestablished sports in different in different countries like when he went to Zaire and Fort George Foreman the sport the and, and in the, the, jungle. the soccer was falling apart then. And after that fight, they brought the money back there and they got the, uh, what's it, they, the morale of all sports and, and, and all the soccer players there. And they brought them back to the team and put the team back together. I mean, he did a lot in all different areas. And so forged a bond also between Ali and Atlanta. That's uh, that's pretty special. And of course, you know, and and almost like the apex of that, uh, the lighting of the Olympic torch right at the end in 1996. Yeah, I'm wondering just from the family perspective, what did that mean to Ali to do that? Well, I wasn't I wasn't married at, to her at that point. Um, I just know that it was a really big thing. You know, they talk about it. it I mean, I just know how Muhammad Ali is. He is the type that wants to please everyone. And if he knows that what he's doing is going to put a smile on everyone's face, then he can't wait to do it. So no matter how long it took for him to walk down there and, you know, he was shaking, you know, a lot of people don't want to expose themselves like that to the world. They know that everyone in the world is watching you right now. They don't want to be seen in in what they call... Then shaking with Parkinson's tremors, yeah. But he knew what that would do to society. And that's why he did most of the things that he did was because he was always thinking about others.
What do you think, Art? What did that mean for him at that moment? The lighting of the cauldron at the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, Georgia, was a a culmination of a lot of what Ali was over the course of his career as a very powerful spirit that reflected strength and perseverance and magnanimity. I look at that footage when we were editing the film several times, and even though it was seemingly a very brief moment, I thought it was a very telling moment because he was having struggles holding that torch and lighting that cauldron, but he was determined. Well, Art Jones, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Art Jones, director and producer of the film Ali's Comeback, The Untold Story, and Yaya McLean, who also worked on the film as a producer. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you for having us. It is screening at the Atlanta History Center this Friday, January 17th at 7 p.m. There are details and a trailer at our website, gpbnews.org. And we'll leave you with a recording of Muhammad Ali singing Stand By Me. This was recorded in 1964. I will be talking with Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep on stage at the Carter Center in Atlanta on January the 21st. He's got a new book coming out called Imperfect Union, and it's about a 19th century power couple, all tied up in the history of American politics, westward expansion, and the Civil War. He's a terrific host and a wonderfully descriptive writer as well. Hope you can join us. The details are at gpbnews.org. That's it for our show today. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Laraven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Don Smith, our dean of grammar. Mary Lynn Ryan is our executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought.